Good morning, church. I want to take a minute and thank the elders for inviting me to come back up here and share with you. It must not have been too awful the last time if they asked me to come back. It's kind of interesting because I do enjoy it, preaching, that is, kind of just something that's always um, resonated with me. And I know, you know, we don't know each other real well yet. You know, Margaret and I are still fairly new here at the church. And so we're all still getting to know each other, even in this small of a of a church, of a congregation. Um, it can take a while. And especially when somebody like myself, I'm fairly introverted. Big surprise, I know. That, doesn't, that shocks everybody here. What would shock you even more is to know that I didn't used to be like that. You knew me 10, 15 years ago. I was, I mean, happy-go-lucky is probably the best word you could use. I was always in the middle of crowds, wanting attention, talking to people. Exact opposite now. And I have a t-shirt that Margaret bought for me that just kind of sums it up really well, my new outlook. And it says, I used to be a people person, then people ruined it. And that kind of, in a humorous way, kind of sums up, I think, in in some ways, the human experience for some of us. Because if you have any interaction with people over time, a friend, a coworker, a relative, somebody in your life has disappointed you. It's inevitable. We're human beings. That's the way it works. And I'm sure I have as well. I've done and said some things that I wish I hadn't in ways that I wish I hadn't or wish I had. On the opposite side, I've sometimes I've not reacted the w- and, and I should have. My kids are in their 30s, but I'll tell you, they can recount every single hurt dad has ever caused them from the time they were born until present day. Okay, it's just, it's all ingrained in their memory. And they're more than happy to share them with me too, as well, to make sure I don't forget in my stumbling and bumbling old age. You know, it seems like I can't have a conversation with them anymore without them saying something like, hey, Dad, do you remember the time when you fill in whatever I did here bad, okay? Some hurt that I caused them. And, you know, we laugh about that, my kids and I, and then we move on. It's, it's kind of a way to deal with some that are more or less hurtful than other things, but we keep it lighthearted. But what about when a parent, a wife, a best friend, somebody that has earned your trust, earned your confidence, somebody that is within your circle of protection that we all kind of have, that you've let them in your bubble, so to speak, really betrays and hurts you, and hurts you in a way that feels like a dark, wet blanket that just weighs you down, and you're just carrying it everywhere that you go. In, in my life, I've always been a very confident person. I've never lacked for ambition. And sometimes my confidence has outpaced my ability to deliver, but that's another story. I was always seeking other people's approval, part of my personality. And when I didn't get it, it hurt, sometimes a lot, sometimes a little bit. After I had left ministry, I got a couple of two or three jobs in sales. And I really, I wanted to, actually, and I really wanted to do well, and I kind of enjoyed it, believe it or not. I'm, I'm a little sick that way problem arose that I could not handle the rejection. I loved when, you know, I had some success and I got to talk to some people. Even if I didn't get the sale, I got to interact with them and I got my opportunity to make my pitch. That was always great. You know, but what was really hurtful was when they just shut me down. Thing that I do to people who sell on the phone, I just, you know, no thank you and just hang up without letting them answer. So it proved kind of a hindrance to that career. And so I say all that to kind of frame up a few years later, there were a string of hurts and betrayals 
in my life that left me at best, I mean, emotionally wrecked and feeling like there was just absolutely no way to escape that dark, wet blanket that just kind of weighs you down. And it was closing in on me and kind of just enveloping me. And I felt like a drowning man and I was reaching for anything at all to kind of stay afloat, if you will. But the sad thing was that through all of that, I pushed away the very people that would be able to save me, so to speak, to give me some relief or some comfort. You know, I pushed away my friends, I pushed away my family, I pushed away my wife. And I wanted to push away anybody who was close enough or could get close enough to hurt me again. I completely withdrew from everyone and everything. I want to read a poem for you, written by Emily Dickinson. It's called, I Measure Every Grief I Meet. I measure every grief I meet with narrow, probing eyes. I wonder if it weighs like mine or has an easier size. I wonder if they bore it long or did it just begin. I could not tell the date of mine. It feels so old a pain. I wonder if it hurts to live and if they have to try and whether could they choose between it would not be to die. I note that some gone patient long, at length renew their smile, an imitation of light that has so little oil. I wonder if when years have piled some thousands on the harm that hurt them early, such a lapse would give them any balm. Or would they go on aching still through centuries of nerve, enlightened to a larger pain, in contrast with the love, the grieved are many, I'm told. There is the various cause, death is but one and comes but once and only nails the eyes. There's the grief of want and the grief of cold, a sort they call despair. And there's banishment from native eyes in sight of native air. And though I may not guess the kind correctly, yet to me a piercing comfort it affords in passing Calvary. To note the fashions of the cross and how they're mostly worn, still fascinated to presume that some are like my own. And that spoke to me in a number of different ways. Because when you're in pain, and when you're suffering betrayal and hurt, those kind of feelings, all you see then is pain. All you see in other people is their pain. Looking at the cross, as Emily Dickinson was saying, a place of joy and freedom, you see pain. And what was my pain in comparison? It's just so consuming with everything that you look at. There was one thought, though, through it all that kind of kept me going. And that was, God, I don't know what to do. God help me. I couldn't pray. I couldn't talk to anybody. I was just so embracing my own hurt. But yet, and all I could do was just cry to God, and say, help me. Nothing more. Our text this morning is in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, 
never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I'm telling you this because you may know somebody who seems to have no joy in their life, who seems to reject any attempt at sharing joy with them, keeps people at a distance like I have been talking about, and are almost repulsed by happiness. When we're in a place like that, the one thing that we have to be reminded of is that God will never leave us. When we're hurt and disappointed, we want to believe that somebody else is at fault. Sometimes it's not somebody else's fault. Sometimes we've just made bad decisions. But God, first of all, will not abandon us even in our bad decisions. Even when we make bad decisions, God will still stand by us. And I don't think it's by accident that the writer of Hebrews connects this with money. In verse 5, he says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Money is at the heart of so many situations that cause stress and anxiety, depression, divorce, even suicide. Because, and it's not because of just money itself, but it's because of the thought patterns that come with it. Because we live in a world that promotes every day dissatisfaction with our lives. We're in a constant state of chasing a better life. If you read verse 5 in a, in a literal word-for-word translation, it says, be without covetousness, being satisfied with the present. I think that's so powerful. And especially if you pair it up with Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or want. I can do anything through him who gives me strength. So the first thing that I wonder about is what does content mean? When we make bad decisions about money, it can have a, a domino effect in our lives. Let's say that you have enough money to cover food, clothing, shelter, your basic needs for safety and security. Something in you just needs some satisfaction, something you need more, and so you go out and buy a nice car. Suddenly, it's harder to meet your basic needs. After a while, your spouse gets frustrated and lashes out at you. You lash out at them. Everybody lashes out at the kids. The kids lash out on you. So you go and spend more money to feel just a little bit better. It piles up and it piles up and it piles up and it begins to domino. And your basic needs become harder to meet then on a day-to-day basis. You see the spiral that's kind of starting here and gaining momentum? And it seems self-evident, maybe to you and me, I've fallen in the same trap the first 10 years we were married, maybe in five. I put us in a financial hole that it took us another 10 years to dig out of because I was gaining self-satisfaction from buying things. Not necessarily for me. 
I go out and buy things for Margaret, and she's like, I don't want that. But yes, hey, baby, it's for you, right? It's, it's for you. And it, good intentions aside, it wasn't the place or the time. We didn't have the money. And before you know it, right, that spiral continues to go faster, and you begin to feel overwhelmed, and you just don't know why. You just can't connect the dots. You know, you feel fr frustrated with your family. They're unhappy because you're unhappy. You're unhappy with your work because you feel like you're not making enough. It affects all your relationships with your family, your kids, and everybody. Most bad decisions about money is when there is a desire for more or something better that drives us. It's what we need to be happy and the next best thing or the next better thing is going to make us satisfied or content. But it never does. So have you ever thought about, have you ever taken stock if you are not content in your life? And I, I don't know if you are or not. Have you ever thought about what it would take to be content, to feel content, to feel settled in and okay, comfortable, at ease, whatever words you want to use with where your life is at the time? Would that list be a better car, newer car, some better clothes, a better husband? Or if you feel content now and your circumstances were to change for the worse, would you still be content? If you are not in as good a position as you are right now, you, would you still be content? Are you unhappy with your situation? If you're unhappy with your situation where you are in life at this present time, that's okay. That's not not being content. Sometimes decision about money is not about things. It's about status, right? about influence. Sometimes influence and this power that money brings fills voids people have inside of them that nothing else can seem to fill. Unfortunately, I've seen this in churches in my history past. There are people that give well and give freely to the church generously, which is always a blessing. There's always a handful of people that do that, and God bless them for the ability to do that. And then there's a very, very small group of people that then will use that money that they give as a method of influence within the church, almost like a little bit of spiritual blackmail. I'll keep giving if my heart breaks for those people, not because they're bad or evil or anything else. It's because they're missing something. They're looking for validation, reassurance, somebody to depend on them, to want to hear from them, relevance. And what you have to remember is when it feels like the evil and decay in this world is ganging up on you. God will never abandon you. No matter what kind of bad decisions that you make about money, about relationships, or anything else, you cannot separate yourself from God through those bad decisions. God will always be with you. No matter how much you're hurting and how unbearable the situation seems, God is always standing by you, even if you don't know it. Sometimes it's not based on things that we do, though or sometimes not based on things that we do or don't do, even if we make all the right decisions, what's the saying? Stuff happens. Sometimes in life, stuff just happens. And it happens to us, and we don't understand why. Because this world is evil. And so number two, let me tell you this. God will not abandon you when you are confronted with evil in this world. God is still with you every moment of the day. Genesis tells the story about how brokenness came into the world in Genesis 3, starting with verse 16. To the woman he said, 
I will grant increase in pains in your pains and childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife, ate from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it, and all the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By sweat of your brow you will eat your food, and you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. What, In a grander sense, if you think about it, what this is saying is, before Adam and Eve disobeyed, they lived in a perfect, ideal situation. They lived with God, walked with God, they lived in a perfect world. They may have lived forever. There are some that speculate Adam and Eve would never have died if they had not disobeyed. And yet when they did, though, sin, evil, brokenness, decay, then was introduced into the world by that disobedience. Our lives are fleshly, and they become one with suffering and death and decay, no matter how hard we try and avoid it. As a pastor, I've counseled families during sickness and death, violence, and so many forms of sin. There is no limit, unfortunately, to the kind of evil that human beings can do to themselves and to one another. Right? It's one thing, though, when we're hurt by the evil of a stranger. It's another thing when we are hurt by someone that's close to us. When that evil, that decay, that sin that invades the world betrays us through people that we love and we trust. I don't believe there is a worse betrayal than when we are hurt by a parent. And I was confronted at one point in my ministry with the idea that, and I think I've shared this with you before, but it was just so profound for me that not everybody can think of God the Father and have a positive way to see that. Some people don't have a good example of a father because of sin and brokenness in this world. Families you know, are split apart, sewn back together, and the frayed edges are just, they kind of wear on us. It's not because of necessarily somebody's sin. It's not because of somebody was right or wrong. It's the idea, though, that this is broken emotional state that we live in creates a situation that it wears on us emotionally, on personally, and it wears on people that we know. We want to draw encouragement when we're confronted with the evil in the world that people do. And Romans 8.28 is one of the go-to verses where it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. God works for the good in all of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Amen. I believe it. Absolutely. Hold on to that with dear life. But at the same time, it is just sometimes hard to reconcile that when bad stuff happens to us. Okay? I'm just, I'm being honest with you, right? I'm being transparent. I never doubt God and his love for me, but sometimes I doubt his methods. Okay? Because I just don't know them, and I don't know him. But how do we explain this? How do we explain this kind of hurt to others, to ourselves, that we live in a fallen world. From Romans 11:33 and 30 through 36, he says, Oh, how the depth of the riches of the kingdom. Oh, the depth 
of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God, God should repay him. For from him and through him and for him all things are all things. To him be the glory. Amen. And it's, it's sometimes a matter of we just don't know. We don't know why bad things happen. We don't know why parents have to watch their children die. We don't know why we have to watch our parents suffer and die. We don't know why we have to sit with somebody who has been hurt physically, mentally, emotionally. It's just, it's evil and it's horrible. That's why we're here, is to minister to those who are hurting the most and to show them that God, while sovereign, loves each and every one of us no matter how weighed down we are by pain and loss from this world, and that God will always stand by you. I'm going to repeat it several times. He will always be by your side. When we make bad decisions, when the world is evil and seems to attack us, and he will always be there. We cannot push him away. And God, thirdly, God will not abandon us when the whole world seems to be poised against us. I don't have to tell anybody here that we are, feels like we're in the middle of a culture war. Um, every day we're reminded that the world is opposed to everything that we stand for in Jesus Christ. This is nothing new. Jesus told his disciples over 2,000 years ago, the world is going to hate you because of me. End of story. As the world rejects God, hope within the world then begins to fade. I've always been a, a fan of rock music, growing up on it in the 70s, and I've, I've, I've still, I still love it. And in a lot of ways, music and movies both influence and are influenced by culture and by people's attitudes. We push certain attitudes towards this media, and then it comes back and reaffirms it, in a sense, right, back to us, and then takes it probably one more notch up. But it's been interesting over the past, I don't know, 30 years, to, to listen to music, rock music especially. And it was, 70s and 80s, it was, from a worldly perspective, very positive. I mean, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, not a good thing. I'm not saying that that's good. I'm just saying, from a worldly perspective, there was kind of a positive, have fun, experience some things kind of attitude. And I've noticed over the last 20 to 30 years, how negative, though, that has become. And, with, and we can talk about the different genres like grunge and all that that have come out of it, but it's become much darker and much more pessimistic today, rock has, than it was 30 years ago. And I believe that because of the world rejecting God and the society rejecting God, it flounders and it looks for light and it looks for some kind of hope in the darkness and it cannot find it. The writer of Hebrews was quoting Joshua 1.5 when he talked about God's steadfastness. And people of Israel were getting ready to cross over into the promised land. Moses had died, right? They've come out of Egypt. They wandered the desert for 40 years because of their disobedience. Now they're getting ready. Moses has died, and that generation has died off. God says, okay, now you're ready. Okay? His time, not ours. 
So he's appointing Joshua as the ruler. He says, you're going to take the people into the promised land. I am going to be with you, and you are going to conquer all of it. All the land I promised you, you're just going to, you're going to take it all. The one thing that he doesn't promise, he doesn't promise nobody will get hurt. He doesn't say, you'll do this with no casualties. You'll do this with no injuries. You'll do this without any kind of suffering. He just says, you're going to do it. You're going to do it because I am with you. You can get over this. But I read into that, it might hurt along the way. Maybe that's my pessimism. For a long time, I didn't read it that way. I read it, oh, they're going to just march through the land and everything's going to be rosy. And I, I don't know. One way or the other. But it's possible. The point being that God doesn't promise it's going to be easy or without cost. But he says, you're going to do it because I'm with you. You're going to make it through it. And you're going to be successful. We need to see beyond the war of the culture, important as that battle is, and see that there are casualties, for lack of a better word. We have folks here and across the area that are very passionate about ending abortion. And I say, amen. Absolutely, 100% agree. We need not to be afraid to call sin a sin and remind people of the horrific cost that is paid by society because of sin. But we also need to remember, and we cannot ever forget, that there are people weighed down by that very sin. Okay? There are women who have had abortions, feel forced into that decision, and the weight of that decision, it doesn't go away. The pain, emotional pain from that decision, never goes away. Doctors that are, they're callous, their soul, their heart is just being callous day after day after day by this work that they perform, killing unborn children. These are the casualties of the culture war. These are the victims, in a sense, of sin in a broken, fallen world. Whether it's abortion, pornography, sexuality, there are people living with the pain and darkness that comes with those decisions, with those sins, and people that are hurting to their very core and living with the pain of those decisions right here as well as out here. People who feel isolated and abandoned by God and everyone else because of those decisions. I've talked a lot of time this morning talking about why people hurt and the things in life that tend to overwhelm them. First, pain is inevitable in this world. We know that. If we're not in it, Pain, we want to avoid it at all costs. Why subject yourself to pain and suffering for, that you don't have to endure? There are a lot of reasons why people hurt, why they lash out, and why they withdraw altogether. And you may know people like that. And we need to be, second of all, we need to be a light for those people, the light of God for those people. An ever-consistent, ever-present reflection of God's love who will never abandon them or forsake them. And they need to know that. I found my way out of my depression after years because of a couple of different people who refused to give up on me. First was my wife and my life partner. She saw the things in me that used to be and could be and continued to believe in me and would not give up. The second was our pastor, who to this day is still a friend of ours, a good friend, he and his wife. And was welcoming to me when I was not the first person you would want to welcome. Okay. 
Okay. I was not only withdrawn, I had, was a very unpleasant person for a long time. And while I didn't want to talk to anybody, I wanted to talk to somebody. It's that constant battle of fear and, and hurt and pain and need. And the hurt and the pain went out sometimes before the need takes hold. And only if people are in their lives, those that are hurting or you that are hurting, only if somebody is in your life that can reflect the love of God can they find some relief. This is a challenging message for me in a lot of ways because it's very personal and I don't like to share a lot about myself, but it's important to me for a number of different reasons. One of the earliest lessons that I learned was that God had placed me in people's paths that I could affect and be a light for. God had put me in those places to be able to affect people. God has in turn put people in my path that could affect me and be a light for me. We were at a church early on in uh, California, Hope Christian Church, where I served. I was fortunate. That was my first ministry. I served as an associate pastor before I went to Bible college. And the pastor and I were standing outside. We were in the parking lot before service and just chatting and you know talking about what was going on that day. And we'd look across the street at what was called a Dianetic Center. And at the time, this was in the late 80s, early 90s, that was the commercial front, or it's, and it probably still is, the commercial front for the Church of Scientology. And their parking lot was always full, okay, all the time. And sometimes, you know, we're out there and we're just getting so discouraged in some ways because the church doesn't really seem to be growing, and yet their parking lot is overflowing, right? They're charging people hundreds of dollars. What we offer is free, and nobody seems to be interested. I always joke that if we charge a mission, maybe it would bring some more people in. But he made a comment that has stuck with me, and is, I guess in, in summary, he said, you know, Chris, it's very frustrating because we get these people in, and they're hurting, and they're damaged, and we minister to them, and we work with them, and after a year or two, they move, and they're gone, okay? Southern California is very, especially then, it was very transitory, and still is, probably. It didn't hit me right away, but I thought about that for a while. And later, that comment in itself became kind of the central theme of my personal ministry. And that is, we at that church were equipped and ready to heal people and to, and to care for people. And so God sent us those people to heal and to be cared for. We didn't see numeric growth as a, year over year as a church, but people came through they were ministered to, they were healed, and we were seeing the evidence of God working, and then they'd go on, and they'd go touch somebody. They'd move, and they'd be able to minister to somebody else. What a blessing. What a blessing to be trusted with God's hurting people. And that has just become such a passion of mine. And if God is not placing people in your path that you can impact and affect and minister to, you need to ask why yourself, and you need to ask God why. Why is that? God, am I equipped? Am I ready? Do you see me as being a resource to minister to your people? And if you are, he will send them to you. If you're not, he will not. Let's pray. Father, this is a hurting world, and we are, each one of us, carrying burdens and pains, some dealt with and some not. 
but I pray that we would remember in all things that your presence, that you are always with us no matter what happens to us, that we can always rely and, and turn to you and be ministered by you. And I pray that we would have the opportunity to in turn to minister to others that are hurting and in pain and need your love. There's no greater service that we can perform than to heal your people and heal the sick and heal the pain and heal the suffering in their lives through your love and your power. In Jesus' name, amen.